you know, my book is about this kind of creativity and innovation. Everyone talks about innovation in Silicon Valley or New York, but the real innovation in this country is going on in the heartland, places like Oklahoma and Texas. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dauenhauer. Today we're talking about the frackers, the individuals who brought about the greatest energy revolution we've seen in our lifetimes. And if you want to skip the monologue and head straight for the interview, that begins at the 325 mark. Probably no other energy sector singles out individuals more than oil and gas. There's almost something quintessentially American about the lone wildcatter setting out into the West in search of fame and fortune. Oilmen have become synonymous with success. Name like John D. Rockefeller, T. Boone Pickens, and H.L. Hunt. In fact, it was Mr. Hunt that inspired one of the greatest characters in television history. I just want you to know, J.R., I'm going to nail you. Haven't you noticed? you got to be a man to play in my league. Yep, the fracking boom of the last 10 years has produced a number of characters that could even give old J.R. a run for his money. And they are the subject of a book that is a must-read for anyone in the industry. That book is called The Frackers. It was first brought to my attention about two years ago, long after I'd been working in the sector. And it's hard to argue this book isn't the first draft of history when it comes to this important period in energy technology. The Frackers profiles more than a dozen figures, but we'll be talking about four of the most prominent. There's the grandfather of fracking, George Mitchell, whose persistence that gas could be derived from shale proved to be revolutionary. Harold Hamm, an Oklahoma boy, came from nothing to become one of the richest men in the country. He combined fracking with horizontal drilling and is the reason for the oil boom in North Dakota, a shale play we commonly call the Bakken region. The outlier in the group is the man I found the most fascinating. Sharit Suki found his way into the gas sector by insisting that the future was in liquefied natural gas. Unfortunately, his terminals were facing the wrong way. When fracking came on the scene and the U.S. no longer needed gas imports, his simple solution put him at the forefront of international energy dynamics. And finally, there's Aubrey, Aubrey McClendon, probably no more controversial energy figure since Enron's Ken Lay. Aubrey and his partner, Tom Ward, founded the Goliath that became Chesapeake Energy. The man is often described as a Steve Jobs type who was able to push limits and get things done long after his board told him to put on the brakes. You also remember I mentioned him quite a bit during my TXU series when he and other gas leaders funded a coal is filthy campaign against that power plant expansion 10 years ago. McClendon died March of last year in a car accident one day after he was accused by a federal grand jury of violating antitrust laws. These men, and many more, shaped the energy landscape in a way that is nearly unrecognizable from how we saw it 10 years ago. And we may not be finished with surprises just yet. Our guest today is Greg Zuckerman, author of The Frackers and a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. I reached out to him a few months ago and we connected one Friday afternoon over the phone from his home in New Jersey. Greg has been at the Journal since 1996 and in that time has written three books. The Frackers was his second. 
More on the third after the interview. I reached out to him because, first of all, I loved the book and wanted you to know about it, but also because I wanted to learn more about the men behind the book. I was also curious what drew this Rhode Island native, Wall Street Journal business reporter, to pack his bags and explore the oil patch. As you'll find out, he learned more than he could have ever expected. Also, as a former TV news producer, I'm fascinated by the process of writing in the long form. The broadcast style requires such brevity. Writing 400 pages on a single topic is a different style altogether. We'll explore those mysteries and more with Greg Zuckerman. here with Greg Zuckerman, author of The Frackers, and as your day job, Wall Street Journal reporter. That is true. I'm a special writer at The Wall Street Journal. What brought you to this story about the oil patch? So I'm a business writer, and to me, there didn't seem to be a bigger business story than this revolution that took place where we went as a nation from one that was desperate for oil and gas and worried about the future to the point where we're actually going to export it. We are, we're exporting both oil and gas. To me, it just seemed like the most interesting and important business story, and it hadn't really been told who the people were behind it, so I thought I'd throw myself into it. We'll talk about the many colorful individuals in this book in a second, but it seems like all the men you profile in this book have one common trait. They're fearless, don't you think? I think that's right. It's a very American book in that there are a lot of immigrants. There are a lot of people who show resiliency. They fail early in life and they persevere. And as you suggest, a lot of them have this fearlessness, this confidence about them. And partly it's, I write about the winners. For every one of these guys, there's somebody else who failed and they don't get books written about them. So self-selecting to some extent, but yeah, you have to be fearless. I mean, these are entrepreneurs. People don't give the frackers and the wildcatters enough credit, but these are original American entrepreneurs willing to risk it all to find oil and gas deep in the earth. My podcast covers all the energy sectors, but when it comes to oil and gas, there's an individualism to that sector that I think is different from the other energy sectors. I think it goes back to the wildcatter myth. Why do you think that character type is so unique to oilmen, like the ones you feature in your book? It's a good question. And I think part of it is the part of the country where these people are from, Texas and Oklahoma. It breeds a certain individualism there. Also, it takes a certain individual to be able to raise money and bet it all on something they can't even see. I mean, if you think about it, they go around the world or go around wherever they live and raise money or they go to Wall Street and they can't tell you a story. They can't show you really what it is that they're betting on, what they're wagering at all on. It's all deep down when it comes to shale. It's more than a mile below the surface. So you've got to be a very persuasive salesman or saleswoman, and you've got to have this faith in yourself to be able to have doors slammed on you and hear no all the time. Let's get into some of the men behind the book. First one is George Mitchell, and he's really portrayed, and not in your book, but really in the entire fracking community as the grandfather of fracking. Tell us a little about him. So George Mitchell, who I was lucky enough to meet in Houston before he passed away a few years ago, he was an interesting guy who started a company and was running a company called Mitchell Energy, natural gas producer, and they were doing pretty well. And around 1982 or so, he could see the writing on the wall. 
and he could see that they were running out of production. It was slowing. Their production was slowing. So he said to his people, well, we got to find a new source for natural gas. And they didn't have offshore acreage or Asia or Africa like the majors did. He had Texas. That's all he had. He had to hit America. So he had to make it work. And all he had was the Barnett Shale, this area around Irving, Texas, which ironically enough, is the headquarters for ExxonMobil. And yet ExxonMobil wasn't drilling over there. They had given up on that area, given up on America. I mean, it was, again, the majors were offshore and anywhere but America, but George Mitchell didn't have a choice. So he says, guys, we're running out of traditional, the conventional drilling. Let's go down below the surface a little farther down or much farther down to shale. And for years, they didn't make it work. And by the time they started making a little progress in the late 1990s, he wasn't even running the company anymore. He was the chairman, but he wasn't the CEO. The CEO was a guy named Bill Stevens, who didn't believe in drilling and shale because the conventional wisdom of the industry was that it wouldn't work. So it took some engineers, a guy named Nick Steinsberger and some others within Mitchell Energy to make it happen. And they kind of had to ignore their own CEO and listen to their chairman, but he really was not running things day to day. So I give them a lot of credit. As I was reading the book, I was thinking, okay, well, this is when he's going to put it all together. And then that doesn't yield success. And so it seems what he was able to bring together was fracking, which was already being done, horizontal drilling, which was already being done, and blended those two. And that's what the key to success was, if I remember correctly. Well, that is the key to this whole revolution. But when it came to Mitchell, they didn't really do much horizontal drilling. They experimented a little bit, but you didn't need to. Just fracking, the key was fracking with the new substance. It used to be mostly these foams that were quite expensive. And I talk about in the book how one day, fortuitously, their supplier made a mistake and they used too much water in their drilling. And this guy, Nick Steinsberger, said, well, hold on a second. Everyone's telling me that it won't work with using mostly water in the fracking substance, but we've shown we can get a pretty good amount of natural gas from this one well. It can figure it out and work with it. And they did. And my book is about this kind of creativity and innovation. Everyone talks about innovation in Silicon Valley or New York, but the real innovation in this country is going on in the heartland, places like Oklahoma and Texas and Pennsylvania. And yeah, they figured out how to frack for shale. There's always been fracking in this country for decades, obviously, but not shale. And that was what Mitchell and company did. You talk about Harold Hamm. That's one of the other major figures here. He's the founder of Continental Resources, an Oklahoma guy. Tell us why he's significant, Greg. He's a, just a fascinating American wreck, the richest story. He was born dirt poor. His family were sharecroppers and they were picking cotton and watermelon in Texas and in Oklahoma where he grew up in Enid, Oklahoma. And he used to get to school only around December or so, Christmas time each year, because he had to help his parents in the fields. So he was always behind in school and they had really no money and he didn't have any backgrounds in geology or engineering or anything like that. But he had a real desire not to be poor anymore. And the guys who had some wealth were the wildcatters. So he used to pick their brain and start off doing things in the industry, clean things out and doing water transportation. And he started a company called Continental Resources and he did some wildcatting and he was quite successful. And he heard about the Bakken, the promise of the Bakken. And he was the first person to get excited about that region, which obviously includes Montana, North Dakota, up to Canada. But he headed up there and he had this, as you had mentioned earlier, this fearlessness, this, this confidence, maybe overconfidence that they were going to be the ones to figure it out. And they leased more acres than anybody else. 
And it took him a while. And I explained what happened in the book. And there was a lot of drama involved. But he and Continental were among the first to combine fracking and horizontal drilling. And that obviously unlocked shale formations in North Dakota and elsewhere. And eventually, it took them a while. And as recently as 2006, they tried to sell their acreage or half of their acreage in North Dakota. And no one wanted it, which is confounding. It's pretty remarkable if you think about it. And yeah, they finally made it work. It was perseverance and innovation and creativity. And now, obviously, you know, you're getting over a million barrels a day from the Bakken and and Continental Resources. And Harold Hamm are quite wealthy. Speaking of Harold Hamm, he spoke at the Republican National Convention last year. He was an advisor for Mitt Romney in 2012. The smart money would have predicted that he would have probably been energy secretary. But Rick Perry was tapped and said, do you think that's the last we've heard of him on the political stage? I think he would have been, if you wanted it, probably looked into it and realized there's not that much oil and gas involved in energy secretary, ironically enough. And he's got a fun job as it is being CEO. The reason he got involved is he had this disdain for President Obama. And it's pretty ironic that many of the guys I dealt with in the industry, the frackers, share that kind of loathing of Democrats and President Obama in particular. And the irony is, obviously, the revolution took place while President Obama was in the White House. Now, it had nothing to do with President Obama. He did nothing to help this revolution. But there is irony involved that it all took place while he was president. So I'm not sure why they're so upset at him. And yeah, they could have drilled on public lands and there were some spent because there were some new regulations imposed on the industry. But all in all, Harold Hamm went from being worth probably about $500 million before President Obama took over to today being worth $15 billion. Will we hear from him again? I guess if there are new regulations imposed on the oil and gas industry, you'll hear from him. But you won't see those in the next four years, at least. One of the people who you talk about in the book, and I'm sure your editor was also saying, this guy is kind of an outlier, not a fracker, but his story and his business plan was probably the most interesting. And you can go ahead and tell everybody who I'm talking about. Sharif Suki. Yeah, as far as the editor is concerned, the beautiful thing about writing a book is they give you a lot, a lot of leeway. So it's really my vision. That's kind of why people like me write books, because when you're at the Wall Street Journal, there are a lot of voices and editors and people weigh in. But the beautiful thing about a book is you get sound advice from an editor, but it's really your baby. So yeah, Shrey Suki's story I just found fascinating, and he plays a role in this revolution. So he's a guy who, an immigrant from Lebanon, he fits that whole theme, which I'm partial to, how many immigrants played an important role in creating this revolution. And he was a banker. He didn't really know much about energy and made a lot of money and went off to retire in Aspen. And then he went through a divorce and had to find something else to do, make some money. And he started a a restaurant or two. One is the Mezzaluna restaurant, which gained infamy because it was caught up in the whole O.J. Simpson murder. He owned the restaurant where Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman were the night of the murder. And he kind of said to himself at one point, I'm making money from the fame of my new restaurant, but it's not what I want to be doing in my life. So he kind of focused on the energy market and his company, Chenier Energy. At one point, they were going to import LNG. And he made the decision because that's what all the experts said. Hey, we're running out of gas in America, so let's import it. Another theme of the book is how the conventional wisdom, the experts keep getting it wrong. They couldn't have got it more wrong. And at one point, senior energy, the stock plummeted to about a dollar a share and he didn't really know what to do. Can you imagine? I mean, you got a glut of energy in the country, a glut of natural gas coming. And this is like 2007 or so. And 
He's got a company importing natural gas, but he turned on a dime and I found it really impressive. And they were the first company to get permission to export LNG from the lower states before anyone even thought about it. And he raised tens of billions of dollars to refit these terminals in Louisiana. And yeah, they became the first ones to export and the stock soared again. And now he owns half of Aspen's real estate. So he's a fascinating individual. Why did you pick him for this story? He's not a fracker per se. For two reasons, partly is because LNG and exporting of natural gas is part of this revolution. It's a result of the revolution. So it plays a role. As you kind of suggested, how many white middle-aged men can you write about from Oklahoma and Texas? Nice to have a mix. So he played an important role to me in his era as broadly defined. And you need a mix of stories of different types of stories. I thought it'd be interesting to also include include somebody who wasn't a producer, wasn't a wildcatter, but he played a huge role because the next step is exporting. And that's just as important as finding it. You got to export it so that you can produce more. And let's get to Aubrey. A lot can be said about him. Tell me what your biggest takeaways were from telling his and his partner, Tom Ward's story. So to me, Aubrey, and even Tom, but Aubrey much more so, he's a tragic figure in a lot of different ways. He had a remarkable gift that few shared, charismatic, great salesman, a visionary. Listen, we've been a third to a half the price for natural gas that they do in Europe and in Asia. And in large part, that's due to Aubrey McClendon. And we have to give him credit for that. He saw the possibilities of shale. Other people saw what George Mitchell did in Texas and said, good job, George, whatever. You found some gas in the Barnett. But Aubrey and Tom Ward said, wait, hold on a second. If you can find all this gas in shale in Texas, maybe you can do it elsewhere. And there were others too. He's not the only one. But they were at the forefront of finding natural gas all over the country. So they changed the course of history. But he's a tragic figure also because he didn't learn the lessons from the 2008 financial crisis. One of them is not to be leveraged, and he leveraged up. He went long all the time. He was always betting in natural gas. And he also was a poor executive for a public company because he did things that were really inappropriate. He, he engineered a huge bonus for himself. After 2008, just months after the company almost went under, they bought his math collection for $12 million. And the company almost goes under, and he convinces his board to give him a $75 million bonus. He did all kinds of other reckless things. So I like gray characters. There's some authors that try to make every character a black and white hero or villain. I don't think people are like that. You can be both admired and criticized as well. The one thing that I found fascinating from reading Aubrey McClendon's story in your book was, I think one of his biggest strengths was his longevity. Here's a guy who pushed and pushed creditors, pushed some more. He bought up all the acreage. Like you said, he was leveraged to the hilt and ultimately he was pushed out for it. But he went through one or two boom and bust cycles. How did this guy keep his job? That's a good question. Well, listen, he was a visionary. He saw things before most other people, but his investors and his creditors never really benefited. And he never really benefited as much as you would think. He's a guy that's going to go down in history as being an architect of this American revolution. And we're less dependent on companies like Saudi Arabia and Venezuela as a result. So we have a lot to thank him for. And yet at one point he was a billionaire, but he blew it. And at his tragic death a year or so ago, it wasn't clear if he was even net positive as net worth. He survived because he was brilliant. And he was also a very persuasive individual charismatic. It was a little bit like Bill Clinton, where you're in a room with him and you think you're the only person. He focused on you. He makes you feel good about yourself, but he had a lot of flaws as well. You interviewed Harold Hamm, Sharif Suki, George Mitchell. I don't believe you interviewed Aubrey, if I'm remembering this correctly. Depends how you define interviewing. It's complicated. I mean, we had interactions. Let's put it that way. 
I don't know if it was ever a formal interview, but we emailed and had some dealings with each other. But he was the only guy of those main characters in your book that you did not get to sit down with. Am I right? Right. The other guys were generous with their time. People like Tom Ward. I went with him to his hometown and Harold Hamm spent hours with me till late in the process when he saw on Amazon the name of the book and he cut me off. And then he sent me a nasty email after the book came out, even though he comes off pretty good, I think, in the book. I think he does. Yeah. yeah. One thing I've learned in my experience is my third book that um, some of the people who you would think would be pleased by how they're portrayed, they're too close to the story. They're too sensitive about their reputations that they often are oversensitive and they overreact potentially. And listen, as a writer, I need to write the good, the bad and the ugly. And early in his career, People didn't give him any credit. He was bumbling. He made some mistakes early on and wasn't educated in this world. But that's what makes it all the more impressive that he created such an impressive company and found all this oil. So to me, those kind of stories out of nowhere to doing something are more impressive. But Harold's not the only one that doesn't like that portrayal. He likes to consider himself as having always been somebody that people respected in the industry and always been a big deal in the industry, even though he was a small-time guy in Oklahoma. But, you know, that's his prerogative and not everyone has to like your work. But Aubrey, Aubrey had been burned many times by the press, so I understand why he was reluctant to actually have a sit down and spend a lot of time with me. I just keep picturing this. You're a guy from Rhode Island. Your Wall Street Journal spent most of your professional life in the city. What was that like for you going out to Oklahoma and Texas? I can imagine you spending a lot of time in a pickup truck. What was that like you know, doing research you know, for this? Yeah, you know what? I could spend 30 minutes on this. It was eye-opening. It was educational. It was necessary. It taught me all kinds of lessons about the innovation going on in the heartland. I had, like anybody from the East Coast, I had some impression of guys in the oil and gas industry. You know, they're filling and polluting and giggling their way to the bank. And when you meet people, you realize that they spend more time outdoors than I do. You know, I sit at my desk most of the day. That's what I do for a living. I get out sometimes. These guys are out there in nature. They hunt, they fish, they have ranches. For all the talk about how we're so environmentally conscious on the coast, I think we're a little too dismissive of people in the heartland. They're not callous to the environment. And I learned all kinds of lessons like that as I traveled the country and got to meet people. And also people were just so generous with their time. I mean, the book is written about a lot of the CEO types, but it's really as much written about the engineers and the geologists and the landmen too. And I try to tell their story. You're my first author I've talked to for this podcast. And I'm always fascinated by that process, Greg. The book clocks in right around 400 pages. How long does that process typically take? Typically or, or this one? Well, <laughs> um, typically probably takes years. I try to rush this and I kind of killed myself to do it because it's a hot topic. It was the hot topic. It still is to me one of the most important topics. So I wanted to kind of strike while the iron was hot. I did some interviewing and then I wrote for a year, but I was doing like all nighters. I was literally up to about two, three most nights because I didn't really take much time from work off. So I would work till two, three in the morning and then wake up and go to work and just do it again. And a few times I looked up from my desk in my office downstairs and I'm like, wait, is that the sun coming up? My <laughs> God. So it's the next day already. So yeah, there were a couple of times I just went through the night, but I was really, really interested and intrigued and fascinated by the story. So it helped me. 
your family guy? Uh, I got two sons. Yeah, I'm married. Oh, wow. We did a book together that came out last year, actually. So I can imagine with the wife and the kids and everything, that makes things a lot more difficult than if you're just a single guy. Yeah, it made it much easier because they were my distraction. They were my breaks. If I needed a little break, I'd go play catch with my son. And if it was just me being neurotic and in my own head, that would be hard. But yeah, my kids are older. They're teenagers, so they didn't need me every minute. So it was more of a pleasure for me and a distraction. Do you have a system for setting things up so that you can write faster? Do you outline the book before you sit down and start writing it? I do. Not to say you don't adjust the outline, but when you're down there at two in the morning and you're not sure what the heck you're doing and where it's going, you go back to that outline. You need that outline. And ah, this is why I got excited in the first place. This is where it's going. This is the arc of the story. So yeah, I had this outline that I literally carried around with me everywhere. And I make notes on it and keep rewriting and scratch things off, but I kept it with me and it was my guide through the whole process. You hear sometimes about these novelists, they rewrite the story. Did you do a lot of rewriting? What's your process on that? It's a cliche, but writing is rewriting. Everything is rewritten over and over and over again. You'd be surprised. Just one paragraph, you can spend an hour or two just rewriting it and making it perfect. So yeah, there's a lot of work. I mean, if you figure out per hour what you get paid for this stuff. You just want to do it. So you try not to think about it. When you go into a story like this, you probably know most of the broad strokes about these people already. You may even almost have a rough idea about what the outline of the book is going to be. But was there anything once you started researching that caused fundamental changes in the story? Yeah, there was stuff going on, especially with Chesapeake and with Aubrey, that was ever changing. It was a gamble in general when I started this thing. I knew they were producing a lot of oil and gas, but it wasn't quite as much as it turned out to be. But my gamble was that you're going to have characters. And if you're colorful characters, you can have potential for a good book. What are some of the big takeaways for you about this book now that it's on the shelf? I was surprised, to be honest, with the production from the oil side. Natural gas is one thing. But when I finished this story, I kind of said, well, okay, yeah, they're producing a lot of crude, but we all know that's an international market. So why would the frackers in and of themselves have that much impact on global prices? But production kept rising and they became the marginal producer. And that surprised me. Listen, one of the big themes is how the experts keep getting it wrong. And it's true over and over again. You look at Brexit, you look at the Trump election, you look at the financial crisis. I mean, I did a book earlier in my career called The Greatest Trade Ever. And it's about a group of people who anticipated the financial meltdown and made billions from it and how they did it. And there too, all the experts got it wrong, the Fed, the banks, etc. And it took some kind of character, some stubborn guys to see what the experts missed. And the same thing happened with the frackers. The book was published in 2013 during the height of the shale boom. And then since then, prices hit a low. And now we are what I'm calling shale 2.0. What do you find interesting about the landscape now? It's that innovation continues. There is a whole new slew of innovations, like using more fracking sands, and they can produce informations a lot different and, and more challenging than they used to. And efficiencies improved, so prices have come down. And again, not appreciated by America and especially the coast, what kind of creativity and prices. I mean, to think that you can produce in shale at like $45 a barrel and still make some money, that's crazy a few years ago. Looking back on now, I'm kind of interested to see what you're working on these days. Any thoughts about going back and taking another look at another part of the energy sector? What's 
exciting to you right now as far as energy is concerned? The improvements in alternative energy is interesting as well. And I love people that are focused on the business to make money. I'm a big capitalist. I work at the Wall Street Journal. So hopefully it'll help in terms of global warming and my kids and my grandchildren will benefit. But to me, you need the incentive, the financial incentive. And luckily there is that incentive. I do find the innovations there, things like battery storage and how that would help in alternatives like solar and wind because you need to really store the energy there. They're making a lot of progress there. And I find that really encouraging. I call that phenomenon enviro capitalism. So, hey, if you want to put that in the Wall Street Journal, that'd be a real kick. Yeah, no, I like that concept and I like the idea and I'm a big believer. Greg, I predict a massive bump on your sales of this book on Amazon. Very nice. Listen, even if few people can learn about some of these innovations and breakthroughs that average Americans created, that's why I wrote it for not so much the Harold Hams, but the engineers and geologists and, and landmen who get all the credit. They really do. I mean, Harold Ham and George Mitchell, they're the visionaries, but the guys that pull it off, the innovators, often don't get that kind of recognition. And it kind of stunned me because I'm a, I write about world of finance and usually you, you make lots of money if you come up with something brilliant. But in that industry, for whatever reason, you don't always get the payoff. So hopefully the payoff is the recognition in my book. I think so. You definitely shown a strong light on a lot of those people. Greg Zuckerman, thank you so much. Sure. Great to be talking to you. That was Greg Zuckerman, Wall Street Journal reporter and author of The Frackers. I revealed to him that one of my bucket list items was to appear in the journal in one of those sketchy headshots. He thoughtfully suggested that I also wish I'd be featured for something positive. Uh, good call. And you heard that right, that he co-authored his latest novel with his sons. Rising Above, How 11 Athletes Overcame Challenges in Their Youth to Become Stars, was co-written with Greg's sons Elijah and Gabriel. Really cool. Greg and all the guests on this program are sent the finished product and raw audio the week of release. We want to ensure that they are represented fairly, and so far, no angry Harold Hamm-style letters. Knock on wood. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. Be sure to check us out out on Instagram at Host Energy and online at energy-cast.com. That wraps up episode 14. Next week, we'll be exploring fossil technology from the environmental community's point of view. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time. 